Good morning, friends. Uh, in 2009, Margaret, my wife, and I moved from Kansas, where we were doing campus ministry, to Houston, Texas. And by that point in our relationship, we had only lived in uh, in apartments, and uh, we had a very small one-bedroom apartment in Kansas. When we moved to Houston uh, to take a, a new appointment, and we were given an, a, a parsonage, and it felt palatial to us. Turns out it wasn't all that big. But after a one-bedroom apartment, it felt palatial to us. We were so excited about it. We drive in. We see a beautifully manicured yard. I mean, the grass is just impeccable in the front yard and the backyard. We didn't have kids at the time, but we just we could see a picture of how this would unfold in our lives. Great um, uh, azalea bushes there, some beautiful trees. We thought, gosh, this is going to be amazing. What we hadn't really counted on is that apparently in order to keep things like, you know, grass and azalea, is alive, you have to care for them uh, with things like, you know, water and you have to trim them and you have to mow lawns and things like this. And at this point in our relationship, at this point in my life, it had been 10 years since I lived in a house as opposed to an apartment through college and, um, and seminary and early marriage. And we just didn't give it really much thought. And so about six weeks, maybe eight weeks after we moved into that parsonage, we looked out and the grass was gone. I mean, it was like the grass could tell that we were terrible at keeping things alive and decided we're out of here. The grass was gone. The bushes were all shriveled up. Even the trees seemed to droop. And it became abundantly clear to us that the amount of work it was going to take to keep all this stuff alive far exceeded our willingness to put the work into it. And we really had to rethink how do we do this? It's amazing to me looking back. I've gotten a little bit better, which is good, uh, but it's amazing to me to look back and think, I had really no idea what I was doing, and I had no idea how much work it would take to keep living things alive. I, I think that's part of the reason that God uses agricultural imagery throughout Scripture. I think that's part of the reason in particular that the image of a vineyard shows up throughout the Old Testament, because that image of a vineyard is a sign of how much work God was investing in Israel to help Israel to bear fruit. Keep in mind, in the ancient world, a vineyard took a tremendous amount of work and time to prepare to bear the kind of fruit that could be turned into wine, to bear the kind of, the, the kind of fruit that would be useful, right? Right. The hill country in Judea around Jerusalem, very hilly, V-shaped valleys, not U-shaped valleys, but V-shaped valleys. So there was no broad plain that you could plant a beautiful Napa Valley style vineyard in. Instead, you had to terrace the hills by hand. You had to cut into the side of the hill to create flat space on which you could plant your vineyard. And then you'd have to go to the bottom of that V-shaped valley and carry up the good topsoil soil that had washed down at the bottom. You'd have to carry it up bag by bag and put it in this land that you wanted to uh, to become a vineyard. You'd have to take out the uh, all of the stone, lots of limestone. You'd have to take out all of those uh, all of those stones and rocks. And don't think little rocks, think big rocks. You'd have to take them out of the field because obviously a vineyard uh, can't grow into a into a rock. So you'd have to take that out. You'd have to build walls around your vineyard to protect it. You'd have to build a watchtower so that you could see predators or, or thieves that are trying to break in and, uh, and take your, uh, take your, uh, your grape harvest that year. And you would have to choose the right kind of vine. 
right? The, the vine that you start with would determine the quality of fruit that was produced down the line. And even after all you did, even after you did all of those things, you'd have to wait six years for that vineyard to produce the kind of fruit that was actually useful. Up to that point, the kinds of grapes that were produced would not have been good to consume. So you, you can hear how much uh, time, how much effort, how much labor was invested in creating a vineyard. That's the image that God chooses time and again in the Old Testament to describe what he was doing for Israel. He describes Israel as a vineyard that God himself has prepared to bear fruit. And yet time and time again in the Old Testament, we hear this, that Israel doesn't, prepare, pre, doesn't produce the kind of fruit that God expected. Instead, Israel time and again produced what Isaiah 5 calls wild fruit. So, so that's the image then that Jesus draws on and reimagines in John chapter 15. Last week, uh, Pastor Phil started us in John 15 where Jesus says, I am the vine, my father is the vine grower, right? God is the, is the vineyard owner. And Jesus says, I'm the vine and you are the branches. Well, Jesus is reimagining that vineyard imagery and saying, it's no longer the case that what matters most is that we live in the vineyard, right? That we live in the land of Israel. Jesus says, the thing that matters most is are you connected to the vine? Are, are you connected to the vine and do you have the, the life of the vine coursing through your veins? Jesus is reimagining this age-old uh, metaphor for God's relationship with Israel and inviting us into a new way of living, a new, a new kind of relationship with God. So, so that's the image that begins John 15. And as we make our way through that chapter, Jesus begins to come out of the metaphor, right? He begins to, to work his way a, away from uh, the vineyard imagery or the vine imagery. And he begins to, to share what he means by bearing fruit. He begins to share what he means by abiding in love. And that's what I want to look at this morning, because there's some absolutely, uh, I think, life-changing teaching that Jesus offers us as we progress through John chapter 15. So if you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to go ahead and open it uh, or turn to it on your phone and pull up John chapter 15, verse 8. And as Jesus comes out of this vineyard imagery, out of this vine imagery, he says this. He says, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. And here's what I love. He's going to make perfectly plain and perfectly clear what bearing fruit means. And Pastor Phil started that conversation last week. As Jesus continues that teaching, he really drills down and makes plain, makes simple what bearing fruit looks like, what he means by that. But he begins in this little note that I just want to pause on. Jesus says, my father's glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and that you become my disciples. I think that language is incredibly important. Because when Jesus says that you become, that his desire is that we become his disciples, what he's acknowledging is that we are not born knowing how to follow Jesus. This isn't something that's intuitive to us. Instead, the notion of becoming a disciple reminds us that it's a process. It's something that that takes time, which is why, by the way, that our investment in the next generation, in, the, in our children and our youth, 
is so sacred. That's such sacred work because we are beginning them on the journey of becoming disciples of Jesus Christ. That's why our children's ministry and our youth ministry are so crucial, not just to the future of the church, but to the present reality of our church. But it's also important for us to remember that even as adults, this work of becoming disciples is not over. It's not as though we make a decision and suddenly we have become a disciple and we know everything that that means. It's not as though we have an experience and suddenly we know everything there is to know about following Jesus. Instead, it's a process that continues into adulthood and through our entire lives. Through our entire lives, we learn how to follow Jesus. And yet, I think for most of us, we would look around us and say, gosh, I'm the only one who doesn't know. I'm the only one who doesn't know the stories of the Bible. I'm the only one that doesn't know how to pray. I'm the only one that doesn't serve enough. I'm the only one that doesn't read the Bible enough. We look around us and assume that everybody else has figured it out and that we're the only ones who haven't figured it out. We forget that all of us are becoming disciples of Jesus together. So before we, dig, before we dig in, before we drill down with Jesus into what bearing fruit actually means, we pause to remember that fear and shame and guilt should not keep us from traveling down the road of discipleship. Just the fact that we don't know everything should not prevent you from chasing Jesus. It shouldn't prevent you from pursuing the kind of life that Jesus is about to describe because he understands that it's a process. He understands that we're going to continue growing, right? Follow that vine imagery. As we connect ourselves to the vine, the branch will continue to grow throughout its life. So he goes on from there. Uh, that was uh, John chapter 15, verse eight. And, and listen carefully to what he says next. He says, as the father has loved me, so I have loved you, abide in my love. As Jesus reminds us that we're called to bear fruit, he offers us then a pattern. And this pattern is, I think, it stands at the foundation, at the core of what it means to, to live a Christian life. It's a pattern that you and I can repeat. What Jesus says to the disciples in this moment is, God has loved me, and so I am loving you. That pattern is the pattern for our lives as well. Because God has loved us in Christ, we are called and empowered to love the people around us. And then Jesus says, abide in my love. And this is where Pastor Phillips did such a great job uh, of fleshing out this notion of abiding, making a home in God's love. But I have to tell you, I'm stuck. I'm stuck because I, I still struggle so many times in life with knowing Yes, but how? How do I make a home in God's love? How do I abide in God's love? I think it's a crucial question, and I'm so glad you, uh, you share that question with me. Listen to how Jesus goes on in verse 10. If you will keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. He tells us very plainly. He says, if you want to know how to abide in my love, just keep my commandments. The problem with that, though, is that it raises two questions for me. The first question is this. That sounds an awful lot like the dictatorial controlling Jesus that our culture thinks Jesus is. Is that who Jesus is? 
Is Jesus the kind of, uh, of Messiah who really is only concerned with controlling us? Is Jesus really the, the kind of Messiah that is only concerned with, with being a dictator over our lives and controlling every, uh, every step and every decision in our lives? Is that really who Jesus is? Is that what Jesus is after? Because I can tell you, I think that's who many in our culture who misunderstand Jesus, I think that's who many believe Jesus is. They believe Jesus is out to control your life and my life. Fortunately for us, in the very next verse, Jesus dispatches that idea. He dispenses with that notion. Because listen, he says this in verse 11. I've said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Jesus isn't after control. He's not after being the dictator of your life. What Jesus is saying is bear fruit, abide in my love, follow my commandments so that you will know a life of joy. He's laying out the path to the good life. He's laying out the path to an abundant life. He says that what he wants, he's telling us this so that we will know the kind of joy that persists. The kind of joy that persists through pandemics, the kind of joy that persists through political crises, the kind of joy that persists through racial disunity, the kind of joy that persists through through all of our trials and tribulations. That's what Jesus wants for us. Not controlling us, but giving us the gift of life abundant. That's the first question that that comes to mind when Jesus uh, says in verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. He wants for us joy, not control. The second question that comes to mind is, well, okay, but, but which commandment? Which commandment is it that we need to keep in order to abide in God's love? Which commandment do we need to keep in order to bear the kind of fruit that Jesus is talking about here in John chapter 15? There's so many commandments in the Bible, right? There, there's so many commandments in the Old Testament. There's so many commandments in Paul's writings. Which commandment is it that is the key to unlocking this life of joy? That's the key to unlocking this life of, 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 of bearing fruit. Finally, finally, in verse 12, we're going to hear the plain and simple truth. I think for so many of us, we make Christian living so complex. We make it so much harder than it was intended to be. We pile baggage on top of the Christian life that I don't know that was ever intended to be there. We make it so complicated. And what's so powerful about what Jesus is about to say is he makes it so simple. Not necessarily easy, but he makes it so simple. And in that simplicity, there is, I think, a life-changing power that's made accessible to us, that, that, that becomes accessible to us. Listen to what he says. This is my commandment. He's very plain about it. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. It's so simple. And, and this isn't the only place, by the way, that Jesus has said it. And you can get the sense that, that throughout Jesus's ministry, he's really saying the same thing over and over again, just in different ways. You remember a story about a a lawyer asking Jesus, what's the most important commandment? What's Jesus's response? He says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, your strength, mind and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. It's the same thing he says here. He says, if you want to know how to bear fruit, if you you want to know what it means to abide in my love, 
If you want to know what it means to follow my commandments, simply love one another. I love the simplicity of it, the beauty of that simplicity. Now, it's left to us to figure out what that exactly might mean for daily living, because this word love is not an emotional kind of word. It's an action-filled kind of word. It means that there are definite consequences and implications for how we live our daily lives. But if we can simply grasp what Jesus is plainly saying in John 15, verse 12, I think our lives would be transformed. He goes on to say in the very next verse, no one has greater love than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. And I know this is a passage that's often used in reference to a a soldier's sacrifice. And I'm not saying that's wrong, but that's not exactly where Jesus is headed when he shares that with his disciples. When Jesus says, my commandment is this, that you love one another and no one has greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. What he's talking about is the cross. The cross is staring him in the face. He knows, Jesus knows, that he is about to lay down his life for his friends. And that laying down of his life, that sacrifice of his life, is going to make possible the fruitful living of his friends into the future. That's embedded, that concept is embedded into the notion of sacrificing yourself. When I sacrifice myself for the people around me, what I'm saying is that my needs are less important And what I'm saying is I'm giving something up. I'm giving myself up so that the people around me can know the power of abundant living into the future. It's a future-oriented action that takes place in the present. I give myself up now so that my friends in the future, so that the people in the, uh, so that the people around me in the future can continue to bear fruit. He's drawing us back into this image making it possible not only for us to bear fruit, but for the people around us to bear fruit as well. A couple of verses later, he says something very, very important. He says, you did not choose me. This is verse 16. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And I want you to pause and consider what it means that God has chosen you for this work of love. That Jesus has chosen you. I don't think Jesus was only talking to the, to the disciples who were listening to him that day. I think Jesus was talking to me and you. And he says, you didn't choose me. I chose you for this work of love, for this work of obedience, for this work of abiding in his love, for this work of, of bearing fruit. And if that's true, Think about your value. If you've ever wondered whether you have worth, if you've ever ever wondered whether you have any value in this world, I want you to consider that the, that the God of the universe has said, I'm choosing you. Not only did I create you, but I choose you. And he goes on and, and he says this, and I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Oh, that... That phrase is haunting for me. I've appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. That phrase is haunting for me. It draws me back into the vineyard imagery, to the vine imagery. Because the truth is, in the ancient world, when you went through all of that work to prepare a vineyard, when you spent years preparing the land, when you spent years pruning the vine, when you spent years waiting for the fruit, 
you are making an investment not in yourself, but in the future. When that vineyard would be passed down from parent to child, parent to child, parent to child, that work of preparing the vineyard was inherently aimed at the future. The work we did in the present to prepare that vineyard was intended to bless, benefit, and provide for future generations. Friends, I think that's the kind of work that Jesus is calling DUMC to do. I think the kind of work that God is is asking of us as a church is the work of vineyard building for the next generation. The truth is in our community, one out of three kids, one out of three people under the age of 18 have no connection to a church home. And you might think, well, they're busy and that's okay. That may be true, but but one out of three, that's a larger number than most of us realize, one out of three children in our area, right here in Dunwoody, have no idea that the God who made them wants them, that the God who made them loves them. They don't know that they are beloved by the God of the universe. They don't know that that their identity, grounded in being created by God, is not built on. Their identity is not built on their academic achievements, their athletic um, uh, uh, prowess. It's not built on their economic value. Their identity is built on the reality that they are children of God. One out of three kids in our own community don't yet know that. What if that's the kind of work of love that God is calling us to as a church? What if God is calling us as a church to to become known in this community as the church who loves children? What if there was a day that no child in our community, no child in Dunwoody or the surrounding suburbs, that what if there was a day that when no child would have to wonder whether they have a home, whether they have a physical home or, a, or an emotional home or a spiritual home, they wouldn't have to wonder because we have made it so abundantly clear that not only do we love them, but the God of the universe loves them as well. Jesus finishes this passage out in verse 17. He says, I'm giving you these commandments so that you may love one another. And I love that. Just like any good preacher, he starts where, or he ends where he began. And he reminds us again, friends, it's simple. The work of following Jesus, the work of bearing fruit, the work of abiding in God's love is as simple as loving one another. The only question remaining is, will we do it? Will we be who God made us to be? Will our connection to the vine as individuals and as a community bear the kind of fruit that we were made to produce? Will we be who God made us to be? We're going to talk more in coming weeks about what it means for us as a church to invest in the next generation. You've already heard a little bit from that from Pastor Phil last week. You'll hear more this coming week. But I want to invite you to start praying. Start praying about who God is calling you to love. 
Start praying about what it means for you to abide in God's love. Start praying about the kind of fruit that you were uniquely built to produce. Let's pray. Oh God, we give you thanks this morning. We are grateful for, for images that we can latch onto that help us understand your love for us. And we are grateful, oh God, for Jesus' example. We're grateful, oh God, that just as you love Jesus and Jesus loves us, we're grateful for that pattern that helps us to see our calling in this life, that just as you have loved us, we are called and empowered to love the people around us. Help us, O Lord, to be a church that bears fruit, abundant fruit, not just for now, but for the future. Help us, O God, to do the hard work of preparing your vineyard so that future generations might know of the love that you have for them. They might know of the power of your grace. They might know of the goodness of your forgiveness. Help us, O God, to be your church. We pray all this in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen.